Bibles with you today, please open to Psalm 133. As we continue our series on the Psalms, we reminded that the Psalms look at the whole spectrum of life, from the mountaintops to the valleys and everything in between. Psalm 133, we're talking about when brothers dwell together in unity. If you are able, I invite you to please stand and honor the reading of God's holy word. The word of God says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collars of his robes, It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Pray with me, please. Lord, as we approach your word, we recognize that you are the supreme author of this word. Remove every distraction from this place that we might focus upon what you have for us today in your word. Challenge our hearts and minds where they need to be challenged. Grow us, Father. Prune us where we need to be pruned. We desire the unity that you so describe in this psalm. And Lord, if there's anything in any one of our lives that needs to be dealt with with other brothers, Father, strengthen us to do that in a biblical way that we might strive for the unity and peace of your church. Bless this time. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Church of the Redeemer, we are a Presbyterian church. We are a member of the Presbyterian Church in America. But why are we called Presbyterian? Do you know why we're called Presbyterian? If we look at the Greek word presbyteros, translated presbyter, is translated into the word elder. So a presbyter is an elder. So a Presbyterian church is simply a church that is governed by elders. We get our name, Presbyterian, from our form of government. You're governed by elders. And how do we do that? Well, at the local church level, we have a group of elders from Redeemer that we get together once a month to meet. We're called the session. In fact, we met this past Wednesday over at Pastor Darrell's house. So every month, our session, our elders get together and meet uh, to make authoritative decisions within the church. We also do this locally. There's about 22 different PCA churches in our area, and we get together once a quarter. It's called Presbytery. In fact, Presbytery is this coming Tuesday. It's at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary at 9 o'clock. If you want to come, please come. You can see what Presbyterian government looks like at, at Presbytery. We also do this nationally once a year. I think it's the third week of June. All the PCA churches in the whole nation get together for a meeting. It's called General Assembly. This year, it was in Atlanta. Next year, it's going to be in Dallas, Texas. Now, I mention all of this to say that what, what happens at all these meetings? Uh, well, let's, let's talk about the big one, General Assembly, the one that just took place in Atlanta. I got to go this year. So you have all the Presbyterian PCA pastors and some ruling elders as well come to General Assembly 
And it, it really is a great time of fellowship. We, we, you get to reconnect with guys you haven't seen in a long time. Uh, for me, I get to reconnect with guys who went to seminary with. Um, I see some past professors. We, get, we have our um, RTS gather, alumni gathering we go to. It's a great time. Uh, there's wonderful times of worship. You get to hear the preaching of the Word. Uh, you sing together. There's about, uh, when we get together for worship, there's, there can be you know, up to around 2,000, a little bit over 2,000 people together in one room for worship because folks bring their, their wives, their, their children. But also a part of that, kind of the main part of it, is our meetings. We meet together to discuss certain items within our denomination. And within the times of meeting, certain elders come up and they bring motions and we discuss those motions. There's some debates on those motions. And when that happens, as you can imagine, there's different views on this motion or that motion. One elder might think this way, and one elder might think another way, and, and that motion is broad. It's debated on the floor of General Assembly, and there's dis- differing opinions. There's disagreements that come out of this. Some argue for a motion, while others argue against the emotion. And from time to time, you can get a little bit cross. This guy might get upset with this guy. This guy might get upset with this guy. And Sometimes emotions get the best of us, and some guys get crossways. But at the end of every General Assembly, you know what we do? The last thing we do to close out General Assembly every single year is all the members of General Assembly, we stand and we sing together. And you know what we sing? This psalm. We sing Psalm 133. You know why? Because it's all about unity. It's all about the unity that brothers and sisters in Christ share because we are all in Christ. That no matter how much we might disagree on certain motions or objections in our meeting, at the end of the day, we are unified because we are all in Christ. It is a reminder that we are all part of one body. As Ephesians would say, we have one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. As Corinthians would say, we stand on one foundation, and that is the foundation of Jesus Christ. And we know that God is pleased when his people stand together in unity. And Psalm 133 is all about unity. Together today, we're going to walk through this psalm. If you have a bulletin, I invite you to look on the very back of that bulletin. You'll see uh, an outline that I'll use to walk us through this psalm. But today, as we talk about Christian unity, we're going to see some vivid illustrations out of Psalm 133. We're going to talk about the problem of our own sin that causes divisions amongst ourselves. We're also going to talk about Jesus' solutions to that. And finally, we're going to talk about what's required of God to have unity, which of course is a heart of humility. But look again with me at the beginning of the psalm, verse 1. The psalmist says this, How good 
and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is good and it is pleasant to God when all of us as believers live in unity with one another. And then the psalmist moves on in verse 2 and verse 3. He gives us what I call two vivid illustrations of what that unity looks like. Let's talk about each of them one at a time. First of all, illustration one is found in verse 2. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on his collar, on the collar of his robes. What does that mean? In the Old Testament, when Aaron was anointed as the high priest, what happened was that oil was poured down upon his head. And it was in an environment that didn't have a lot of nice things. Didn't have a lot of things that felt good. Didn't have a lot of things that that actually smelled good. But in the midst of an environment that was somewhat uncomfortable, this oil served as something that actually felt good and smelled good. And when it poured down over his head and ran down his his beard and onto his clothes, it was a very refreshing thing for Aaron. But also what would happen is that the smell of that oil would, would go out into the community and those who were around him could actually smell something that was pleasant in an environment that didn't have many pleasant things to smell. So the psalmist uses this as an illustration of how good and how pleasant unity is. So in an environment that didn't have a lot of nice things, here's something that feels good. Here's something that smells good. It's delightful. That's what Christian unity is like. The next illustration is in verse 2. Or, excuse me, verse 3. It's illustration number 2. The Bible says it is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So this illustration has to deal with geography. So let's go over the geography of Israel. If you look at Israel, you can kind of divide it into three parts. In the north, there's Galilee. In the middle, there's Samaria. And in the south, there's Judah. Now, in southern Judah, you can see it's actually kind of coming up out of uh, the desert, uh, the Sahara Desert out of Africa, you come up and you first get to the land of Judah. So it's not a desert, but it kind of pulls some of the desert into it because it's still hot down in Judah. There's not a lot of green in Judah. The green is up in Galilee. So down in Judah, it's hot, it's sticky, and that's where Jerusalem is in Judah. So when the Bible talks about Zion, it's talking about Jerusalem, which is in hot and sticky Judah. So you have Judah, Samaria, Galilee. What's above Galilee? Above Galilee, there was a mountain. It was called Mount Hermon. And that mountain was so tall, it had ice caps at the top of the mountain. So what would happen from time to time is that this wind would come down from the north and carry into the south. That this cool, frosty air full of dew 
would be rushed south through, Samaria, through Galilee, through Samaria, and down into hot and sticky Judah. Or, yeah, uh, Judah. So if you're standing in Zion, if you're in Jerusalem where it's kind of hot on a day where you're sweating and things don't feel very good, what could you use? You could use a very refreshing wind. And that's what would happen. The dew of Hermon would fall down on Mount Zion. It's like that feeling where you've worked in the yard all day on one of those hot summer days and you're sweaty and you're sticky and you, and you walk in maybe to a room and there's a fan blowing and you stand right in front of that fan or an air conditioner blowing. Have you ever had that feeling where you're so hot and then, oh, this refreshing wind comes on you and you feel refreshed? That's what it's talking about here. When the cool and frosty falls on the hot and sticky, it's a refreshing thing. And the psalmist says that's what Christian unity is like. In a world that's filled with all this hot, sticky mess, Christian unity is like this nice, refreshing blow of cool air full of dew that refreshes me. It's the dew of Hermon falling on Mount Zion. It's a wonderful thing to feel. So you can see the psalmist here is going to great lengths to say Christian unity is something that feels good, smells good. It's, it's the hot and sticky receiving the cool and refreshing wind of Mount Hermon. But here's the thing about life, and we all know this, that in that relationship with other people, things don't always smell good or feel good, do they? In a relationship, even amongst Christians, things don't always stay cool and refreshing. Sometimes they feel hot and sticky. Sometimes they just stink. There's rifts that come into our relationships. There's divisions that show up. Why? Well, because of our own sin, our own personality, our own demanding, our own preferences and situations. We choose to grieve our brothers and sisters, and our brothers and sisters choose to grieve us. You see, this side of glory, though we're forgiven by Christ, though we're justified by Christ, we still struggle with that sin nature. As Paul said in Romans 7, I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I should do. And we find that's true in our lives as well. And because of that, there's division amongst us. We choose to hate instead of love. We choose to covet instead of being content. We choose to lie instead of telling the truth. We choose pride instead of humility. Selfishness instead of selflessness. We choose to steal instead of working hard. We choose to lose our temper. We choose to gossip. We choose to be impatient. And when that happens, we know what the results are. We become angry with each other. The relationships that we used to have that were tight are now separated. They're now far, far apart. We're not reconciled. And this happens, and this happens even among Christians. Here's a question. Did Jesus know this was going to happen? Of course he did. 
Jesus is God. Jesus knows everything. Jesus knew that even though Christians would come to him, receive him by grace through faith, and be believers, he still knew that those Christians, as they walked through life, would still struggle in their relationships with other people because they're still fighting a sin nature. This side of glory, brothers and sisters, we will continue to fight that until Jesus comes back or he calls us home. So what do we do? If Jesus knows this, what does Jesus tell us to do? He's going to tell us two very specific things to do in the book of Matthew. Hunter read both of them. But before we get to Matthew, if you have your Bibles, I want you to open to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Or, I'm sorry, Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. We're going to look at Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. This is what Paul says. He's talking about, again, unity. He says this to the Ephesians. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And here it is, verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Believers, Paul calls us in the Word of God to be eager to maintain the unity in the body of Christ. What are you eager about? If I'm honest with myself, sometimes I'm like, I'm eager about doing what Adam wants to do. I'm eager about Adam's agenda. It's not what this says. This says, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Believers, we are called, as one of our top priorities, to work towards, to be eager about the unity of the church. And that's going to be hard for us to do because we're still dealing with our own sin nature. We're still dealing with I, I, I. Where the Bible talks to us here about pursuing the eagerness of the unity of the church. Now, with that in mind, let's go and look at the two passages that Hunter read just a moment ago. We just said that Jesus knows issues are going to happen in the Christian life. He knows that we're going to rub noses. What do we do when that happens? Both are given to us in the book Matthew. The first one that Hunter read a moment ago was from Matthew 5. Let's go back and kind of recall the situation in Matthew 5. In Matthew 5, the Bible describes a man who comes to worship, but when he comes, he remembers that his brother has something against him. This man, he's not upset with his brother. But he realizes his brother is upset with him. He's got something against him. So maybe this man has done something to upset this other man. Maybe there's something of grievance that this man has done to upset this other man. Well, if you're this man, you're coming to worship and you remember that he has something against you, what are you to do? 
Did I hear pray? <laughs> That's always a good thing to do. But you know what Jesus says to do in this situation? Jesus says to leave and to go to your brother and be reconciled. To leave, to go to your brother and be reconciled. Brothers and sisters, we need to realize that Jesus Christ has given every single one of us the personal, God-given responsibility to work to maintain the unity of the church by going to our brother in love. You see, maybe there was some type of misunderstanding. Maybe there was a sin that I committed that I don't even know about, that he's concerned about. Maybe there's something that I've done that I need to go to this brother and say, hey, I'm sorry for doing that. Will you forgive me? Maybe there's something I've done unintentionally or even intentionally that has caused my brother to be grieved against me. What am I to do? I'm to go to that brother. And in the midst of that, I'm to pray and ask God, Holy Spirit, will you bless this situation that I might be reconciled to my brother, that the church might be unified. The other situation is in Matthew 18. You see, in our first situation, this man realizes that his, bro- that his brother has something against him. But in Matthew 18, what you have is a man realizing that he has been sinned against by someone else. It's a different situation. He has done something to hurt me. He has caused pain against me. He has sinned against me. What are we to do about that? If someone has sinned against you, what are you to do about that? Did you know that the answer to this question is the same answer as the question we just answered? The Bible says if your brother has sinned against you, what are you supposed to do? Go to him. So whether you've upset him or he's upset you, the solution is exactly the same. God has given us a personal responsibility to work hard to maintain the unity of the church by going to our brother to reconcile with him. If someone has done something against you, they might not even know it. Go to them. In love and gently, as Galatians 6 reminds us, we should go and tell him what he has done. And Matthew 18 says, if he listens, you've gained a brother. If he doesn't listen, the Bible says, take the next step. Take two or three witnesses with you and go to him. And if that doesn't work, take it to the church. But you see, there's a temptation for every single one of us, including me, to skip these steps altogether. There is a temptation for every one of us to say, I'm not going to go to my brother. I'm going to do something else. I'm just going to complain about it. I'm going to get with my friends and I'm going to tell them what such and such person did to me. I'm just going to talk to my friends about it. Or, what is very common today is to just put it on social media, to just rant publicly to the world anonymously. 
about something going on in your life with, with some other person. You're not going to name names, but you're just going to blast it out there. I have, you're not going to believe what such and such did to me or what happened to me, and you just blast it. It's not good. It's not helpful. It's not helpful when we gossip to our friends. It's not helpful when we blast it to the world. Another thing people will do is they'll just tell their pastor. Hey, pastor, you're not going to believe what such and such did to me. Or tell your elder or deacon, you're not going to believe what such and such did to me. You know what? It hurts. It hurts when people uh, do you wrong. It, it, it does. But what I want you to know is that at Redeemer... When you come to your pastor about that, I'm going to look at you and say, hey, I am so sorry you're going through this. I can see you have a personal issue with another person. You don't need to tell me. I want to equip you with, by all means through God's word and even help you go to that other person in the Lord and talk with them about it because you don't triangulate. You just do it linearly. You go to the other person. There's no need to bring your pastor in or a friend or the whole internet. You just need to go to that person. Why? Because that's what Jesus says to do. Don't miss the personal responsibility that we have with our neighbor. God tells us in his word that we have to work for And have an eagerness for the unity of the church. And see, unity breaks down when we just become gossips. Unity breaks down when we refuse to have our God-given responsibility to go to our brother. Listen, we're supposed to be united to our brothers. We are one body. We have one faith, one baptism, one Lord. We got to be able to talk to each other and love each other through certain things And I want to tell you, when this happens, think about this. When this happens, let's let's do the two situations. You're the guy who realized that this guy has a grievance against you. So what do you do? You need to start walking this way, right? You're the guy over here who's been sinned against. What does the Bible tell you to do? Walk this way toward that guy. So in an ideal situation, what should happen is that this guy should actually pass this guy on the way to talk to each other. How often does that happen? Not very often. But that's what God calls us to do. And when those things happen, we all have to have a willingness to say five words. You ready? Because this is profound. This is going to be some profound theology coming out right here. There are five words that Christians need to, you need to have on the tip of your tongue as you go through this life with other Christians. And as I tell you these things, I guarantee it's the same five words that you taught your children when they were about this high. You ready? The first two are, I'm sorry. And what are the last three? I forgive you. Why does it take so much just to say you're sorry? You know, we let things like pride and arrogance come into our minds and our hearts. This refusal to see anything different than what we might think. We become this automatic authority on life and we 
We think we can, we can never have done something to offend this person to get to the point to say, I'm sorry. Do you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Christians, the Lord wants us to live in a state of humility one towards the other. In our heart, we need to be able to go to our brother and say, you know what, I'm sorry. I messed up. I'm a sinner who's just saved by grace. I'm sorry I let you down. Will you forgive me? And on this side, the person who is so angry because of what he or she did to me, who has all this resentment and bitterness that's built up in the heart and in the mind, even to the point of malice sometimes, if this is you, can you come to this person and say, I forgive you from the heart? You see, the only way this can happen is in a heart that's been changed by Jesus Christ. Jesus teaches us in his word to forgive other people. Why? Why? Because Christ forgave you. We are to forgive other people because Christ forgave us. Jesus tells a parable about a man who owed so much money to the king and the king forgave him. Yet this same man went out and found a guy that owed him some pocket change and began to strangle him for the pocket change to the point that he put him in prison. The king found out about it and basically said, how can you who've been forgiven so much not forgive your brother? Christians, how can we hold on to these, these things and not forgive our brothers? Because we realize that Christ has forgiven us. We love others because Christ has loved us. And just as we come and humble ourselves before the Lord, we have to humble ourselves before each other. And there's going to be times where we need to say, I'm sorry, where we need to say, I forgive you. This is exactly what we teach our children when they're this high. Yet when we grow up, we forget about these fundamental things of dealing with each other. We hold so much in our hearts. And when we do, it breaks down the unity of the church. One of the worst things you can ever do with anger is hold it in. Anger will never stay neutral in your heart. It will grow it will be like poison that runs through your body. What does Paul say to do with anger? He says, deal with it before the sun goes down. Before the sun sets, get it right with your brother. The anger might not have a stronghold in your heart. So, beloved, as we start wrapping things up this morning, there's always going to be problems. Always. I'm going to sin against you. You might sin against me. On this side of glory, it might be like this. Jesus knew that. And Jesus gives us two solutions, one from Matthew 5, one from Matthew 18. We've got the information. We know what he wants us to do. We know how he wants us to live. My question is, are we going to do it? So right now in your heart, Ask this question, what is going on in your life? Have you grieved your neighbor? Is there someone you need to go to 
in humility and say, I'm sorry. I've messed up. Will you forgive me? There might, it might be something that you did unintentionally. Jesus says, if that's your case, go. Go do it. There's an urgency there. If you're on the other side, if, if your brother has sinned against you, what are you going to do? Are you, you going to just talk to other people? Are you going to just blast it? What are you going to do? What I encourage you to do is go to your neighbor alone, you and him, you and her. Go to that person. Work this out between the two of you. Every single one of us have to do this in life. And as you do it, ask the Holy Spirit of God to lead you, to guide you into all understanding, to give you that heart of humility. Because when you do, it will smell like the precious oil that's poured out on the head of Aaron. that flows down his beard and on his garments. When you do, it'll feel like the dew of Hermon that falls on Mount Zion, that cool, frosty air full of dew that falls onto that hot, sticky land. When you do, the unity of the church will be maintained. When you do, God will be glorified. And His church will be a testimony to the world of the reconciliation that was first brought to man, not by man and man, but by Jesus Christ who came to us to reconcile you and me to God. Let's pray.